It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Good to have you back, David. Thank you. Good morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. We're going to hear from retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson. As the hostilities between Israel and Gaza enter their third week, we enter our third week of coverage. Over the past two weeks, we've spoken with Israeli journalist Gideon Levy and Middle East researcher James Zogby. Today, we're addressing a question that keeps coming up. Was there any military purpose to the Israeli response to Hamas's attack? Our first guest today, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, can speak to these questions with some authority. We're hoping Colonel Wilkerson can shed a little more light on exactly what happened on October 7th, how the attack unfolded, and why it met so little military resistance. How much on either side the Hamas attack and the lack of Israeli resistance was intentional, and how much could just be chalked up to incompetence? And does it matter? After we speak to Colonel Wilkerson, we'll be joined once again by our resident constitutional scholar, Bruce Fine, who will give us some legal perspective on the international side. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our staunch corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's approach the Israeli-Gazan conflict from a military perspective. David? Lawrence Wilkerson is a retired U.S. Army colonel and former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. Colonel Wilkerson served as deputy director and director of the U.S. Marine Corps War College at Quantico, Virginia, and for 15 years, he was the distinguished visiting professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. He is currently a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network, senior advisor to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and co-founder of the All-Volunteer Force Forum. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Thank you. Good to be with you. Welcome indeed, Larry. You've been on the inside on the run-up to the Iraq War under George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. You, you were chief of staff for Colin Powell at the State Department. Give us your current view of what do you think is going to happen now and going back to October 7th. I paint the picture this way. Picture this, if you will. You have the richest nation in the world on a per capita basis with more per capita basis billionaires than we have. Israel, backed by the richest nation in the world, heavily, heavily in debt, but still asset-wise, the richest nation in the world, going against the most oppressed, repressed, poor people in the world, the Palestinians in Gaza. What's wrong with that picture? That raises the question that Biden doesn't seem to distinguish between the subjugators and the subjugated and the colonizers of what remains of Palestinian land, 22% of the original Palestine, taking land and water and all kinds of checkpoints and blowing up houses. Factually, it's pretty clear that the difference in military superpower on the side of the Israelis in the U.S. compared to the feeble weaponry of the Palestinians, if they're even able to acquire them, is probably the greatest gap in the modern history between the occupier and the occupied. Why doesn't Biden recognize that? You know, he's supposed to be a foreign policy expert. He's been in Afghanistan many times, in Iraq and Ukraine. Why doesn't he recognize those basic facts, which unrecognized are going to lead to a massive slaughter, 
larded with genocidal orders by the Israeli defense minister when he said no water, no food, no electricity, no gas, which are the words of annihilation and extermination. They've reined him in a little bit. I mean, I was quoting him at Temple Emmanuel up in New York City uh, a couple of nights ago, Rabbi Bob Woodham's congregation up there. And there were some stunned people in the audience when I quoted him, several IDF generals and so forth. But they've they have reined them in a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. I compare the situation roughly to when Grant finally gave Sheridan, commander of the Army in the West, and Sherman, his Secretary of War, to go into the Black Hills for gold and to annihilate the Indians, the Native Americans. Only that was 175 plus years ago. A lot of waters passed under the bridge since then, heinous though that was. And we've had the Geneva Conventions. We've had all manner of humanitarian law and humanitarian justice, courts to enforce it, and international courts, regional tribunals, and everything else. So this is not quite the same thing, although the crime level is about the same. And the fact that the United States is allied with it is unconscionable. And secondarily, I listened in New York City in my hotel room to Biden's Oval Office address. I listened twice. I took notes. And at the end of it, one CNN commentator got it right, but they cut him off pretty quickly. What Biden was saying is there's chaos in America, Americans. I want to use the war in Ukraine and the war in the Middle East to unify this country, open parentheses, and get reelected, close parentheses. That, to me, was one of the most despicable presidential addresses I have ever had the misfortune to listen to. Well, I think the listeners need to know Netanyahu's support of Hamas in the past. Hamas was a small religious organization in the 1980s, and the U.S. and Israel supported it, expanded it, funded it as a counterweight to the secular Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. But there's more to it recently. The New York Times on October 24th quotes Netanyahu in 2019, this is pretty astonishing. The quote in the Times is, in 2019, Mr. Netanyahu told a meeting of his center-right Likud party, and this is the quote by Netanyahu, quote, those who want to thwart the possibility of a Palestinian state should support the strengthening of Hamas and the transfer of money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy, end quote. That was 2019 by the prime minister then and the prime minister now. So what's the political intrigue here? What's going on? Well, it's a little more complicated, I think. I go way back with this, before Netanyahu even, with Sharon. And what's happening is a kabuki game where Bibi entices, he doesn't have to entice very much, the emir in Doha, not only as he did support the Taliban talks, one wonders why the Taliban were comfortable in Doha, one of the biggest supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, into giving hundreds of millions of dollars to Gaza, which he is ready to do for humanitarian reasons, but also to supply Hamas, because Bibi is very strategically allied with Hamas. Hamas does not believe in a two-state solution. They are adamantly opposed to a two-state solution. They want a Palestinian state and Israel gone. But Bibi sympathizes with that because he wants an Israeli state and the Palestinians gone. 
So he's very much willing to work with Hamas, not explicitly, but certainly tacitly and implicitly, to undermine Mahmoud Abbas, not hard to do, he's so corrupt, and the Palestinian Authority, who do indeed want a two-state solution. So Bibi's been enmeshed in this for a long time, and Sharon before him, ever since George W. Bush told Arik Sharon in the Oval Office, I believe it was 2003 or four. over to you, Prime Minister, Everything for the last 40 to 50 years has failed, so we're not going to do it anymore. Put the roadmap away, put two states away, put the peace solution away. It's over to you. You do whatever you want to do. Open parentheses, kill anybody you want to kill anytime you want to kill, close parentheses, and we'll support you. Well, there seems to be an Israeli government strategy that goes beyond revenge for the massacre on October 7th. The New York Times reports over 115 health facilities have been devastated, hospitals and clinics so far. So they've already achieved revenge, but they're going further. They're pushing the population to the south, maybe trying to push into Sinai. They said to the northern Palestinians, get out of your homes, apartments, hospitals, go south. And then they started bombing the south around Khan Yunus and even bombed the Rafah crossing into Egypt. So every place in Gaza is a target. Schools, clinics, hospitals, water mains, electric networks, UN installations. They've already killed 35 United Nations staff working for UNRWA, even though the buildings are clearly marked and have been marked for years as UN buildings, and churches, mosques, you name it. So what is the strategy now Beyond revenge, is it just to clear Gaza of its population and annex it, push them in the desert? I don't think Israel has a strategy. I think their tactics right now, and that's what I would call them, not strategic, but tactics, are to destroy as much as possible in as short a time period as possible. They've elongated it a bit, I think, from pressure from the United States, other Arab countries, and other countries in Europe. They've elongated it a bit, but they're still pretty brutal, and they're still just killing people to be killing people, really. They have no strategy, because if you sit and think about it for a moment, you ask yourself some pretty fundamental questions. If you do what you just described as a strategy, who rules Gaza afterwards? Where do these people go? Egypt won't take them. Egypt has threatened to back out of its peace treaty with Israel if they have to take too many of them. Jordan certainly won't take them. They already have more Palestinians in Jordan than they have Bedouins. So nobody's going to take them, and living in the Sinai is not a solution. So who's going to govern, and where are they going to live? They have not thought this out at all. They've just thought the brutality out, and they are busy executing that, somewhat attenuated by the fact that others are telling them, don't be so brutal. You'll lose the strategic picture to Hamas rather than winning it. And that's exactly what they're going to do if they keep on the same track. They'll lose the strategic picture. They'll destroy every relationship they had or were building with the Arab countries. And they'll wind up with a problem they can't do anything about except repeat it endlessly ad nauseum. Maybe that's what Ben Gavir and the crowd that runs with him and Netanyahu now because he accepted them into his government. Maybe that's what they want. I mean, they were conducting pogroms in the West Bank with the settlers helping. Every day they would do something that would get a few Palestinians killed and killed brutally in the West Bank, doing the same thing in East Jerusalem. 
So I have no idea what Netanyahu's goal here is to stay out of jail. Stay out of jail. That's his real goal. And he's using because of the corruption case against him. But there's also internal politics. You know, he can stifle dissent, opposition. He's already got a unity coalition with the more liberal party. And that's yeah. one way he stays in power. But Netanyahu is nothing other than a very shrewd politician. He's been around a long time. In 1976, he addressed a joint session of Congress to huge applause and standing ovation. And nothing was more louder than when he said, paraphrasing him, the Israeli economy is really doing very well now, and we're about to stop asking for U.S. aid. He got a huge standing ovation. And of course, U.S. aid has continued to get bigger. Of course. We're talking with retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson, a long experience in government, chief of staff for Colin Powell. And since he left the military, he's been a strong advocate and networker for peace and justice and end to the U.S. empire. Larry, what is the U.S. strategy here? They've sent two carrier task forces with destroyers to the eastern Mediterranean, one Navy veteran half seriously said the other day that they better watch out and be careful about Israeli fighters coming in on them, alluding to the Liberty attack, the attack on the U.S. Liberty in 1967 by Israel. You want to describe that? Well, that was a a horrible deed. My students have parsed over it endlessly, gone through the archives and everything else. I have no idea why the Israelis did that, but I have a suspicion that they did it intentionally, that there was no bones about it. They did it intentionally. And they did it because Liberty was uh, very sophisticated for the Times, Intel ship, and she had intercepted communications between the Israeli leadership. In times of war, most people don't know this, in times of war or near war, Israel surrenders the civilian leadership to the military. They don't do like we do. Our president stays in charge throughout whatever conflict we might be in, World War II, Korea, whatever it is, our president stays in charge. Not true with Israel. They turn everything over to the generals. And what was happening was the generals were talking about some pretty nasty things, and they were talking in a way that Liberty intercepted, and that was disaster, and so the Israelis attacked the ship. Their full intent was to sink it with all hands on board. They even machine gunned some of the survivors in the water, and we covered it up. We covered it up completely, a heinous deed indeed, but we covered it up. The Navy covered it up. The Navy was forced to, and the president himself covered it up. I don't think we'll ever know the truth about it, maybe in 100 years. But yes, I'm more concerned with those carriers in terms of the following. Two things I'm really concerned about. And if we get to be three there, I'll be really concerned because carrier ops cannot go on for more than 24 to 48 hours unless there are three carriers. Then they can go on around the clock. If we send three carriers there, then we are very, very concerned about China, Russia, and Iran in terms of the conflict there, but in a bigger sense. That is to say, we're going to teach them a lesson. They can't interfere when we're in our lake, the Mediterranean, with our craft, those aircraft carriers. And so we're going to teach them a lesson. This bothers me greatly because we're going to wind up with a carrier or two on the bottom of the ocean with 10,000 casualties in about 10 hours. Because these carriers are okay for striking Syria or striking some country that has no real capability to come back 
But with China and Russia, they'll sink a carrier or two in a nanosecond. It's that easy. So what what is the strategy of Biden and the Blinken uh, Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense Austin? What, what is their strategy right now? Publicly, they're basically saying we're against the ceasefire. We're against the humanitarian ceasefire. They're urging Israel to abide by the laws of war. That's the quote, abide by the laws of war. and shipping ferociously all kinds of weapons, some of them having nothing to do with this particular conflict, and pushing for a $14 billion plus aid package through Congress for Israel to have the American taxpayer pay for the Israeli colossal blunders and intelligence and detection failures that rendered them unable to protect their own people on October 7th. I mean, this is what it's all about, a, a tremendous intelligence failure that expose these civilians in the kibbutz and other places to the raid. What, what, is the, what are their strategy? Of the National Security Agency and the CIA and DIA, because we have a base in Beersheba that is state-of-the-art. We have another base that has adequate intelligence capacity. So to tell me that Mossad and Shin Bet and the rest of the Israeli intelligence service missed this, is to tell me that the United States, working hand in glove with them, with its very best and highest ranked intelligence entities, failed too. No new occurrence, of course, but no one's talking about that. What was the base in Beersheba doing? What were the other people doing? Indeed, what was the entity in this country, CIA, NSA, and so forth, doing? that they miss this completely. Are they really that stupid, incompetent? Well, it's interesting. This low-tech attack on October 7th basically overtook the high-tech surveillance, the sensors, the detectors, the videos, the informants. Um, it's almost inconceivable. How do you explain that? Were well, they all asleep at the switch? There's three things that contribute to that. Arrogance and hubris lack of imagination, and thinking your enemy is subhuman. All three of those apply to Israel, and for that matter, they apply, I think, to the United States, too. But I'm looking at it from the perspective of how could you possibly do what the Israelis did unless there was some intent there to aid and abet it? Now, I can't bring myself to conclude that yet, and I don't have the evidence to support that, so I won't. But otherwise, it's a colossal failure. And the only way I can explain it is the way I just did. Arrogance and hubris, treating your enemy as if he's subhuman and therefore incapable of anything. And the fact you lack imagination. Israelis have lacked imagination for a long time. All they think about in the IDF, for example, is occupation duty. Now, there's another possibility. And this possibility doesn't obviate the others, but it goes along with them. In 1973, Two people talked about the failure in 73 when the Egyptians were able to do all they did initially. And one of them said this, very cogent remarks. He said, we knew where every tank in the Egyptian army was 24-7, but we didn't know what the people in the tanks were thinking. That's a very prescient observation. They had no idea what Hamas was thinking. They thought Hamas was thinking about governing. That's the reason they helped in the election in 2006 and got Hamas elected. Netanyahu even said this. He thought Hamas would be busy governing. 
Well, they were not busy governing. <laughs> they were busy working out the next intifada. Here's a question the media hasn't asked, our knowledge at least. Where did Hamas get these weapons? There's an embargo. The Israeli Navy apprehends any ships coming with weapons to Gaza. They got informants all over Gaza. They don't get these weapons in pieces and put them together into machine guns, etc. Are they getting them, as some Israeli journalists suspect, from the Israeli underworld? Well, I can tell you this right now. If you've read Misha Glenny's book of several years ago, McMafia, they even made a TV series out of it, and Israel got it pulled off the air almost instantly. There is such a huge traffic in arms in the world. Misha estimates the black economy at, at, this is several years ago now, this is over a decade ago, at $5 trillion. That's a lot of money. Of that $5 trillion, of course, some of it is illegal trafficking in people. Some of it is drugs and associated illicit activities. Some of it is prostitution. Some of it's auto theft. But a big portion of it, and the United States is right at the center of this, is moving arms around moving arms around. My own state here, Virginia Beach, is a conduit for arms going out. The NRA had a problem. National Rifle Association had a real problem with its finances recently. And I've had people associated with the NRA who've left it, subsequently left it because they hate Wayne LaPierre's guts. They have told me, they've insinuated that the NRA sometimes in order to make money is in on some of these less than licit weapons exchanges, especially those that go overshores. So if you're looking for somebody who's in charge of the illicit arms traffic in the world, <laughs> look internally. Well, Hamas had some pretty sophisticated technology to pull this off and to defend themselves in the tunnels, etc. Could it be that when Netanyahu told his own Likud party, that, quote, those who want to thwart the possibility of a Palestinian state should support the strengthening of Hamas and the transfer of money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy, end quote. Could that money have gone to buy in the underworld trafficking, the arms that Hamas has acquired? You ask, could it? Yes, it could more f easily than we might want to think. But I'm not going there because I have no proof of it at all. That would just be shocking to me that you'd wind up contributing to the deaths that happened on October the 7th yourself. I can't go that far. Well, you remember Secretary of State Colin Powell when Bush and Cheney initiated the criminal invasion of Iraq, and you were right there in the State Department. He said something. He said, when you invade a country, you own it, which is another way of him saying you got to protect the civilian population under international law. And we'll learn more about the international law violations of the U.S. and Israel near the end of this program with Bruce Fine. What is Israel going to do if it invades and Occupy, or because it doesn't want to be responsible for civilian population fleeing and destitute and dying, they just go in and do their work and then go out and then go in the next day? What do you see here? Well, they've had this strategy for a long time of mowing the lawn, as they call it, just going in periodically and annihilating everyone. I go back to Operation Cast Lead. I had an IDF officer actually tell me that his battalion commander said to him as Operation Cast Lead was unfolding, kill everything that moves, dogs, cats, babies, women, children, kill everything that moves. We are sending a signal this time. I have no doubt that that was probably an honest revelation by that particular IDF officer. So 
What comes after that, though, seems to be something Israel never contemplates very well or never comes up with a solution. It's hard for me to criticize them because we did the same thing in Iraq and the same thing in Afghanistan, less brutally perhaps, but nonetheless, we had no strategy in Iraq nor no strategy in Afghanistan. It was just kind of to stay there year after year after year, mow the lawn. So I don't know what Israel's gonna do, but I'm not impressed with post-conflict times in the past. They don't seem to know what they're gonna do. Who's going to govern well, Gaza? When you were in on the strategy to invade Iraq, and you all were advising Bush and the White House and Cheney, did you ever talk to him about observing international law, the UN first Charter? All, yeah, first of all, you didn't advise Cheney. He advised you. Second, <laughs> Will Taft, our lawyer at state, was very vocal and very eloquent in explaining the obligations under the Geneva Conventions for an occupying power and all the ancillary duties that went along with it. Um, But Dick Cheney didn't listen to that sort of thing. Dick Cheney was like Netanyahu. Dick Cheney was all about, let's get it done and get it over. And getting it done was, let's kill the Taliban, let's kill Al-Qaeda, let's do whatever we have to do in Iraq to whoever opposes us and, and get it over with and get out. And oh, by the way, they wanted to do the same thing to Assad in Syria and the same thing to the Ayatollah and his boys, the RGC in Iran. The only thing that stopped them was Iran did not cooperate. It was not a pushover. And an insurgency started and they had to hang around because Bush ordered them to do so. No doubt in my mind that had Bush not ordered them to hang around, Cheney and Rumsfeld would have pushed the forces and made the president conduct the operation they wanted on into Syria and on into Iran, and we would have... Uh, did, anybody, did, did anybody tell Bush, for example, Mr. President, we do have to remind ourselves that when you go into Iraq under shock and awe, the slogan, there are going to be a lot of children, women, innocent men, mothers, fathers killed, and you have to take that into account. Did anybody put that human element in front of him? Will Taft did, and so did Powell from time to time. But, I mean, you have Madeleine Albright saying, once she was asked, do do you know that the sanctions kill hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqi children? And she said, well, it was worth it. That's the way we think. Actually, the figure was put to her by Leslie Stahl was 500,000 Iraqi children. Don't doubt it. Well, the overwhelming proportion of human beings in Gaza are children and women. Almost yeah. nearly half of the population of Gaza are We're children. The casualties right now, the, the, the casualties that UNICEF is reporting amongst children are just staggering. And this is what I want to ask you. It seems like given 8,000 missiles being used already against the civilian population and so-called military targets in Gaza, it's inconceivable that there are only 6,000 fatalities. I mean, they blew up apartment buildings. There are strikes by Israeli missiles that killed 60, 80 people, crowded marketplaces. Is it possible that Hamas is lowballing the fatality toll because they don't want to appear like they can't begin to protect their own people? There are people now dying from contaminated water, disease, the fear of a cholera epidemic, starvation, lack of medical care for injuries in hospitals, no medicines. Would you be surprised if the total death toll reaches 30,000, 40,000 within a couple of months? Eventually, I, I would be surprised if it didn't go that high because those things you ticked off laterally to the bombs, bullets, and bayonets, they kill more people. 
usually on the battlefield and post-battlefield, the ratios 10, 11, 12 to 1 in terms of those kinds of casualties, disease, water, the ruination that war causes to the combat casualties. So you're you're going to add at least 10 for every one in combat for the aftermath and the disaster that comes in that aftermath. How do you read the citizen temper here, if there is I, one? I think we're perched on a very dangerous post right now. And I, I owe this idea or the conception for it to the Jewish community in New York. You know, there there were more Jews in New York than there were in Israel till the Russians immigrated, but there's still a lot of Jews in New York. And most of them detest Netanyahu. And one of them said to me, without blinking an eye, the greatest motivator to anti-Semitism in the world is Bibi Netanyahu. They are very worried. They won't talk about this because they're afraid if they talk about it, they'll bring it to fruition. They're very worried that the American people, very noted for this sort of thing, will do a volte face, a change of face at the last minute. And we'll wind up having attacks on synagogues all across the country and anti-Semitism will be rampant. Let me tell you about the street I was on in Great Neck. The street runs north-south with four synagogues on it. Some are conservative, some are liberal, some are reform. The light was so bright when I came out of the synagogue that you could see like daytime. And I asked the rabbi, I said, what's this? He said, that's the police. They're everywhere. The police are all around the synagogues because they fear. And I suspect they've actually had threats to get that kind of police protection. So it'll be a huge change and it'll be almost instantaneous. You'll go to sleep on Monday night and everything will be okay. And on Tuesday morning, you wake up and the majority of the American people will not have any use for the Jews in their midst. That is not a good development, but that's kind of the way we do things in this country these days. In fact, you go back to the past, it's the way we did things in the past often too. We make decisions based on almost groundless evidence, but a groundswell of opinion, and then suddenly it's an entirely different ballgame. That's a dangerous situation to be in, and of course it extends to Europe, it extends all across the globe. However, what I'm seeing all across the globe certainly 3 billion people, maybe more, is an absolute detesting of what we're doing right now, both in Ukraine and in the Middle East. It's growing every day. Hundreds of people are converting in places like Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, and so forth, to hatred of the empire. That's not a good development either. It's one we will recognize too late and too little. Well, there's fear on all sides. There's fear by Islamic Americans, by Palestinian Americans. They're being canceled events, literary events, 92nd Street Y, canceling events. They're being told to shut up at universities. They're losing their jobs just by saying on their social media that they want a humanitarian ceasefire. So there's a lot of imported censorship here yes, from the anchor. conflict over there. Muslim anchors, you know, being taken off their shows, Mehdi Hassan being the most notable one. Mehdi has been very outspoken. Yes, MSNBC's anchors, yes. And it's a lot going on. There's a prominent person working in creative artists in California, and she made the mistake of saying that she was for a humanitarian ceasefire, and she was pushed out regardless of the clients she brought to the firm. And, of course, there are now corporations 
putting pressure, donor putting pressure on universities to stifle student dissent. And it's going to increasingly affect our country, not only in terms of finances and empires abroad, but it's going to deteriorate our own democratic society. Uh, you see that? Has. Yeah, it already has, and it's, it proceeds apace daily. We're talking with retired Colonel Larry Workerson, who until recently taught at William & Mary. He's taught at the Naval War College. He has networked former high-ranked military, retired all over the country to argue for peace, for diplomacy, for an end to the empire, for controlling the runaway, unauditable Pentagon budget. And you're still doing it day after day, Larry. Well, the Israelis year after year, the military and the politicians say that Israel does not target civilians. Your response? <laughs> That's the biggest nonsense I've ever heard, but I've heard so much nonsense coming out of Tel Aviv and now Jerusalem that I'm inured to it. And I've heard the same nonsense coming out of the White House and out of the Congress. Ralph, I testified before Elizabeth Warren's personnel subcommittee of the Senate Armed Services Committee recently. I had to be berated by Democrat and Republican on that committee. The ranking member, Rick Scott from Florida, spent his entire opening remarks time berating me for calling Netanyahu a criminal, for being anti-Israel, in his words. Tim Kaine from Virginia, a Democrat, an otherwise relatively sane man, he had to get his licks in when it came his time because he was so afraid of the lobby, so afraid of the greatest foreign agent operating in our country, APAC, and its associated ancillaries. He was so afraid he had to get a lick in at me, too. You dare not criticize Israel if you're in front of the Congress. What about the assertion that Hamas uses human shields? I wouldn't put it past that to happen on occasion in a tactical necessity. They would say it was a necessity. But let's look at Israel's counterpart. Israel has now said it's rescinded this rule. <laughs> I hope it has. But they have this rule. I forget what they call it. It's some biblical term. If one of their soldiers is out there in front of the fight, which happens all the time when you're fighting urban warfare, if he's out there and he's interfering with the rest of the soldiers, you shoot and kill him. If he's apt to be captured, you shoot and kill him because he might divulge information under interrogation. So you shoot and kill him. It's called the Hannibal Rule or something like that. But they disowned it recently in their own press because someone had made some uh, to-do about it. But that's the IDF. You think they've decided to sacrifice the hostages in Gaza? I think Biden's one positive message, positive in the sense of the whole brutal war, was that don't do that. Don't do that. If I see you doing anything that I think is going to threaten those American lives in particular, but the hostages' lives in general, I think there are about, what, 197 or 198 left, then I'm going to have a really harsh conversation with you. I think Biden probably impressed that on Bibi. I don't know how much it'll work, but I hope it works at least a little bit because we need to get those hostages back. And Hamas, Hamas has shown that they're willing to work. And the Israelis have shown by past actions that they'll give up 6,000, I think it was, Hamas prisoners for a couple of Israeli soldiers. So if you're willing that much to protect your own citizens, then certainly here you ought to be able to 
work some exchanges. And let's get them out of the way before everything turns so brutal that they're impossible. Any chance for a short truce like in 2014 for a prisoner exchange? Well, the Israelis. In the sense of exchanging hostages for some of the seven, 8,000 Palestinians languishing in Israeli jails, many of them youngsters, without any due process or even charges against them. Any chance there? I don't know. I, I hope there is, but the Israelis have been fairly adamant that there be no ceasefire because Hamas will gain if there's a ceasefire. And I, I think we've been backing them in that so far. I think if it came up for a real sizable and understandable exchange, that is to say, the circumstances suggested and everything were, were proper and right and, and could be secured, that'd be a game changer for Biden. And he would intervene and he'd say, let's do this. Let's do this. They've offered to give 100 hostages back at this point at this time. And in exchange for whatever, let's do it. I, I think he'd have to do that because it might break and get in the press. And then what would he look like? Well, the decision by the Israeli military to go and wipe out the tunnels, they can do that with flooding, with gas, with napalm. But if they do, they're going to destroy the hostages as well. I said yesterday on another show, I said, this is the most difficult form of warfare, urban warfare, no question about it. But if you are honorable, if you are operating in accordance with the rules of war, Geneva Conventions and other things, land combat warfare, the rules of land combat, you will sacrifice your soldiers to obey that law. So you go painstakingly through the process. You don't use wholesale means to kill people indiscriminately. You don't kill hostages. Maybe they die in the process, but you aren't responsible for it. You are willing to risk three or four of your people being wounded or even killed in order to conform with the law. I don't see Israel in that guise, though. I, I see them as not giving a damn about humanitarian law or the law of land warfare. So that's bad. That's bad. It's bad for the hostages, too, if they're allowed to carry it out that way. I just hope we tell them you can't do that or you're risking our support. That'd be a first for us, but I'd like to see that first. Well, there's a precedent. President Eisenhower in 1956, when the Israelis, French, and British Air Force were attacking Egypt over Sinai, he just stood up and said to him, stop. And yes. they did stop. Biden's not willing to do that. No, when he's not Dwight Eisenhower. We had a president then. David? How catastrophic an intelligence failure was this for Netanyahu? And could you give us some insight into decision-making processes that are clouded by shame? George W. Bush must have been humiliated after 9-11. Security was his calling card, and it happened on his watch. Security was Netanyahu's calling card. So how does shame cloud their judgment moving forward? Majorly. Bush actually convened a meeting in the Oval Office with Franklin Graham and some other evangelicals. And in his meeting with a few of us later, he essentially said he told them, I'm full of rage. Help me control that rage. I'm a Christian. I need to control that rage. I don't think he did that good a job of it. And I don't think Netanyahu will probably do that good a job of it. It doesn't seem to be doing that good a job of it. And there was also, as you intimated in your question, a real fabric for about 24 hours around the White House of, wow, this exceeds Pearl Harbor. Will the American people throw us out? 
And then suddenly they began, as Washington failed to really evacuate itself, that's what the president said to do because we couldn't evacuate everybody methodically. The American people seemed to kind of be in shock, but then they kind of gel behind a few things that came out of the administration and whoa, all of a sudden they realize we can get them back if we've lost them. All we got to do is appear like we're really angry and doing something. And so when Colin will talk to the vice president and president about, hey, when you do war against these terrorists, there's some drawbacks. One, you're going to elevate them to warrior status. Two, you're going to increase the executive power to the point where things might get out of hand. Boy, did they get out of hand. AT&T, Verizon, and everybody else joining in to get them out of hand. But it was a troubled time, and you have a hard time managing yourself during these troubled times, and no one really tried to on our side. It was a long time before we started thinking rationally again. Anna? What is the most accurate way to refer to the conflict? I remember being taught to refer to it as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the language seems to paint them as combatants in, in, a, in a level war. What is the most accurate way to refer to the situation? Is it conflict? Is it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or is there a more appropriate term? You know, we wrestle with this one, and we made really bad decisions calling them unlawful combatants and all other terms that we came up with in order to try and assuage the fact we had left Geneva, our own creation, really. They're guerrillas. They're guerrillas fighting back against a super modern military who don't have tanks, who don't have armored personnel carriers, who don't have all the sophisticated weaponry that they're up against. And so they're using guerrilla tactics. They're time immemorial. They've been around forever. And we've invented all these terms, unlawful combatants, and we love terrorists, terrorists. Well, three billion people in the world think the biggest terrorist in the world lives in Washington. Two billion think it's absolutely non-debatable that the biggest terrorist lives in Washington. So one man's terrorist, to quote Ronald Reagan, is another man's freedom fighter and vice versa. The way to look, I think, at this conflict right now is unconscionable, violative of every rule of war in the book, violative of humanitarian decency, and one-sided to the maximum. The same way you would look at, as I said before, the extermination of the Native Americans in the Black Hills in order for gold miners to get in there. Just to elaborate your point for people who don't have the context, the war in Iraq killed over a million Iraqi civilians, and they're still dying from the destitution and the disease and the untreated injuries. In the diaspora, either internally displaced or somewhere else outside Iraq's borders, we killed two and a half million, maybe more. There's a verdict not really in firmly yet. In Vietnam, we dropped more iron bombs on North Vietnam than we dropped on Nazi Germany in World War II. You know, what's terror? It's clear to me. Yeah, and there's Libya. There's supporting the Saudis in Yemen. There's the overreaction in Afghanistan, to put it mildly, for 20 years, civilians dying children, women, men, families. Yeah, I mean, we've got a great capability of turning our back on what are clearly violations of international law, the Geneva Conventions, even our own constitution. These are not declared wars, even though they're wars. But Josh Paul, the State Department uh, individual who just voted with his conscience, 
is just the tip of the iceberg as to what the United States has been doing with its armaments shipped to Israel. Talk about Josh Paul, the State Department official who was responsible for arms transfers and security assistance to foreign governments for a number of years, who quit just recently. Yeah, he quit on moral grounds, ethical grounds. And I've been there. I saw some of the things Israel was doing with our equipment. And most of the equipment we give them under FMS or whatever methodology we give them the equipment comes with a caveat. And the caveat says, essentially, if you're killing men, women, and children with it, we'll take it back or we'll censure you or, you know, do something at least. Hell, we rarely ever even demarched them when they would do something with it. It was just the order of the day. It was business. I'm told right now, I hope this is true. Josh is not the only one. I'm told the dissent channel at the State Department, which is a way clear to the secretary, for any foreign service officer, I think they extended it to the civil service now, too, to send in a dissent, and the secretary must look at it. That's the ruling. I'm told that that channel is so clogged with messages into the secretary that Blinken couldn't read them all if he tried and isn't trying. I'm told that they're putting a squash on it, and they may even cancel the dissent channel or suspend it for a period of time because it's overwhelmed with people registering their disdain for American foreign policy. Well, in case some listeners are still skeptical here about the equities, hold on a few minutes until Bruce Fine comes on, and he'll quote the famous oft-quoted remark by David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel, first prime minister, seen by Israelis as a George Washington of their country. And you'll see his comment to Nahum Goldman, then head of the World Zionist Organization in just a, a few minutes. Francesco, your comment or question? Yeah, I'd like to ask Colonel Wilkerson, a two-state solution no longer seems possible. And so where do we go from here? What could a contemporary peace deal look like? A lot of people have brought up the idea of a single binational state with equal rights. And is that a realistic goal? I think the two-state solution should be forced on them, both sides forced on them. I think it ought to be like Cyprus, it ought to be like Kashmir. It ought to be like the Korean Peninsula and a number of other places around the world. I don't care if it lasts for 75 years, like Cyprus has, I think. Korean Peninsula says 53. We should divide the territory in accordance with UN Resolution 242. We should put the Palestinians on their side, the Israelis on their side. Let them figure out if the Palestinians who are living inside Israel, some of whom have Israeli citizenship, move or not. That's an individual decision. Put a U.N. force in perpetuity between them and tell them live with it or we'll shoot from the U.N. force both directions and, you know, enforce it. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Another possibility I work with every other Sunday with Joseph Asafar. It's called the Israeli-Palestinian Confederation, and we have all manner of people on there, Knesset members. We have people currently citizens of Israel, currently citizens of Palestine, Gaza, or wherever, East Jerusalem, and they come on and they express their views and everything, and we vote on issues. We put a government. We put a government over, it was over, PA, Palestinian Authority, Hamas, and Israel, and each of those entities has veto power over legislation we pass. But we conduct elections in the 14 million or so people between the river and the sea. 
And those elections put in place a president, vice president, and a 300-member parliament. And we take over gradually lots of things like enforcement of security of the different borders and checkpoints and so forth. We take over education. We take over all manner. We vote every other Sunday on these issues and this legislation. And many times we have people, most often Israelis, who veto it, sometimes Palestinians of both stripes, PA and Hamas. But that's another possible solution. People think it's pie in the sky. But if you could get this umbrella federal government, if you will, over the three entities, now I guess two, and enforce legislation over time, you could probably create a single state that was democratic. We were just getting ready. Right before October 7th, we had built a sign. The sign costs $30,000. The sign says in big, huge letters, a Jewish state is not good for Jews. We had permission of the Israeli government. We were going to put it up in Tel Aviv for 30 days on a main avenue. That's off now, of course. But that just tells you there are possibilities if we just don't give up. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately. We've been talking with retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson. Any last comment you want to make before we close? I'm not a religious man normally, but I tell you what, I've I've taken to praying. This is a tragic situation, and one we have had every hand in making. Thank you very much, Larry Wilkerson. To be continued. Thank you, Ralph, and all of you. We've been speaking with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com, and we will also link to the Josh Paul State Department op-ed from the Washington Post on our Substack site. Up next, we'll talk to Bruce Fine about the international legal implications of the U.S. participation in support of Israel. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, October 27, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Police are investigating possible corporate manslaughter charges at the hospital where serial killer Lucy Letby worked. That's according to a report from the BBC. The former nurse, 33, was jailed in August for murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Chester police said the latest investigation was in its early stages. Lawyers representing some of the victims' families said they were reassured steps were being taken to consider the actions of management. Organizations and companies can be found guilty of corporate manslaughter in the UK as a result of serious management failures resulting in gross breach of duty of care under the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act of 2007. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Wire. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph and Hannah and Francesco and the rest of the team. Let's talk to Bruce Fine about international law in relation to what's going on between Israel and Gaza. David? Bruce Fine is a constitutional scholar and an expert on international law. Mr. Fine was Associate Deputy Attorney General under Ronald Reagan and he has argued before the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bruce Fine. Thank you, Bruce, for coming on. There's a legality issue here if we believe in the rule of law and international rules of orderly jurisprudence that you have looked into in terms of your experience and all. And we both sent a letter to President Biden a few days ago 
outlining it because we took note of the several times he cautioned Israeli leaders after October 7th, quote, to operate by the laws of war, end quote. How is the United States and Israel operating by the laws of war? Well, Ralph, it's a wonderful question, and I think the audience would be informed to receive a little bit of a background because it's often said, you know, this is just Israel responding in self-defense. They have no other course of action, and therefore everything they're doing is O Quran. And this is a quote from David Ben-Gurion. He was kind of the George Washington of Israel. He was the first prime minister. He is lionized for decades before he finally retired after decades in the Israeli government. And this is his quote from the head of the World Zionist Organization. It's not a quote that is reported by Hamas, among others. Quote, if I were an Arab leader, Ben-Gurion said, I would never sign an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have taken their country. It is true. God promised it to us. But how could that interest them? Our God is not theirs. There has been anti-Semitism, the Nazis, Hitler, Auschwitz. But was that their fault? They see but one thing. We have come and stolen their country. Why would they accept that? End quote. So this is reported by the head of the World Zionist Organization. To be a Zionist is someone who believes that there ought to be a state of Israel, a nation for Jews. So that gives you, I think, an understanding of the dynamics, the clash between the largely Arab Muslim Christians and the Jews and that neighborhood, if you will. For anybody in the audience who would like to verify this, this was taken from a Nahum Goldman book called Jewish Paradox, page 121, published by Grosset and Dunlap. And I'm not getting a commission for any purchases that you make. <laughs> the publication year is 1978. What have been the violations of international law? So in, in summary, here's what the, the landscape looks like. The United States now itself has become guilty of violating the laws of war, the ones that Biden himself said should be the operational norm for Israel. How has he done that? He's given systematically weapons and military intelligence and financial support to Israel to commit the crime of genocide against Palestinians by creating conditions of life calculated to destroy the group, in part by becoming a co-belligerent, giving weapons that are used to kill vastly disproportionate number of civilian Palestinians compared to any legitimate military objective. He's used as a co-belligerent the military weapons that help to require forcible relocation of more than a million, I think at least one point million Gazans in North Gaza to South Gaza, that's forcible relocation being a violation of law of war. And then he's engaged in what I'd call going and using and assisting Israel in using the weapons and his military intelligence to go vastly beyond any right of self-defense, which is permitted under Article 51 of the United Nations. And at that point, it becomes a violation of the prohibition of aggressive war. So you put all that together and it really is it, it's almost laughable to have the president of the United States stand up there and proclaim as the fundamental principle of U.S. international foreign policy is make it a rule-based international order as he's violating the orders himself. And that's why we end up with blowback. Thank you very much, Bruce Fine, for your observations on the current scene and always upholding the international rule of law without which we have wars of aggression, we have empire, we have terrible 
courses of violence around the world, which is why the rule of law is something that has to be more than just lip service. It has to be deep in the veins of our foreign and diplomatic policies abroad. Thank you. I want to thank our guests again, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson and Bruce Fine. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And, in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. Saturday, October 28th is Tort Law Education Day at the American Museum of Tort Law. Join Ralph Saturday, October 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern for the museum's free virtual panel on Why Don't People Sue? Go to tortmuseum.org to register. And if you missed the live event, go to tortmuseum.org to view the live recording. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We read them all. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is the indefatigable Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. And if you want a Department of Peace in our government in Washington, Congressman Jim McGovern is the most likely one to introduce the bill. We have a Department of War. We don't have a Department of Peace. We don't wage peace. We don't work on conflict avoidance. So get in touch with Jim McGovern, Democrat from Massachusetts. Call him up and urge him to put that bill in so we can have hearings and all those good peace groups all over the country can have a rallying point. Thank you. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Ralph asked Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson what leaders in Washington are doing about the devastation in Israel and Palestine and how the American people are responding. Is there anything you want to say that we haven't touched on? You know, I'll call everyone's attention, I hope, back to the original picture I painted for them and ask them what's wrong with it. Americans from California to Maine, from Minnesota to Texas, the richest country in the world backing another rich country against the poorest people in the world in a combined zone that Gidon Levy actually called an open-air concentration camp. What's wrong with that picture? And what's wrong with us providing the bombs, bullets, and bayonets for that to happen and the billions of dollars that we give Israel every year? It just makes me sick as an American to see this happening. Should you, too. Well, you're a uh, military man. What's it like to be an Israeli fighter pilot taking off every day with a load of bombs, and the F-16, looking at his orders, and he knows he's going to blow up all kinds of civilian targets? How do you think that pilot feels. This isn't really combat. You know, they're not fighting other fighter planes or anti-aircraft. There's nothing there. As Gideon Levy of Haritz pointed out in the 2014 Gaza war, he said they're, they're destroying totally defenseless people. So put yourself in the mindset of these pilots. Well, there's two or three things that happen there. I think about the Norwegian pilots that told me they were elated to have been dropping the first bombs in Libya. (laughs) 
part of it is being a pilot. You don't see it. You don't see the impact of that bomb. The larger part of it is being expressed by breaking the silence and others who've backed away from the Israeli military after being a participant therein. They feel so sick and so conscience-stricken that they have to leave the military and speak out. Those numbers are increasing, and Netanyahu has tried his best to stop that from happening, and yet it is still happening. People are leaving. And then the other aspect of it is you do it again and again and again, and you're inured to it because you are convinced and your leaders help you remain convinced that these are subhumans. You ask yourself, how did Grant authorize Sherman and ultimately Sheridan on the ground to exterminate the Black Hill Indians, Native Americans? They did so because it was something you did. I mean, Sheridan, after all, had said the only good Indian is a dead Indian. They were good Civil War generals. They knew how to kill people. They went out and killed Native Americans. You do it carefully over time by making your enemy subhuman, by saying things like the only good Indian is a dead Indian, the only good Hamas is a dead Hamas. That's the way you do it. And it's carefully done over time. What was it, the old expression? You have to be taught carefully to hate. What's the story in Congress here? You go and talk with a lot of members of Congress over the years. What's the story with Congress? Just abdicating its oversight, declare war authority under the Constitution? What have they been saying? It's a disaster right now, particularly in the House with the Republicans. They can't even pick a speaker. But my experience in the last couple of years going over to testify or whatever, didn't matter the issue, I'd I would always come around on the side, if you will, and talk about Israel or or indirectly talk about the wars we have going on, Ukraine being the most prominent one. And I would find absolute disinterest other than the mantra, other than what you were reading on the, you know, above the fold front page of the New York Times. We got to support him. We got to support him. It's like Biden's speech. Come on, Mr. President, you want to use two wars? Two of the worst wars the United States has ever been involved in, and God almighty, that's saying something, to unify the American people? Are you kidding me? That's what he said. Go back and look at those remarks. That's what the president of the United States said. He said, if you will just support these wars, if you will just support the money going to them, we'll reunify the country. That's what President Biden said. But Congress is like a rubber stamp, and the Republicans seem to be even worse than the Democrats. Do you you remember what Senator Cotton and Senator Lindsey Graham said? Yes. Graham was as bad as some of those IDF generals, and Cotton, Cotton was horrible. I quoted him at Temple Emanuel at the synagogue in New York, and people afterwards who came up to me said, did he actually say that? I said, absolutely. I'll show you the quote. Cotton is unconscionable. He is unconscionable. He actually said... I hope they make the rubble bounce. Well, every military man knows what that means. That means after you've killed all the men, women, children, babies, dogs, cats, rats, you drop a few more bombs just to make the rubble bounce. That's the senator from the great state of Arkansas talking, a West Point graduate, a Harvard graduate, and a foul human being, in my view. Harvard Law School, no less. Yep. Well, what do you expect the American people to do? I mean, they seem to have less of a role other than some expanding demonstrations on Capitol Hill and the demonstrations in Washington and around the country, often led by Jewish Voice for Peace, 
collaboration between Palestinian Americans and Jewish Americans. We have to do pay attention to their courage and their moral compass. Next up, Steve asked Colonel Wilkerson about Hamas's military strategy. Steve? My question is this. Talk a little bit about the Hamas military strategy here. Seymour Hersh was reporting that they were training and they blew up these security fences. They expected to meet some military resistance, which they didn't. But then once they blew up the security fences, it became a jailbreak. If you know any more about that kind of from the Hamas side? That's pretty much what I've heard. And they did it rather remarkably coordinated. That is to say, there wasn't a warning because this one went before this one. So this one was stopped. They did it along the line, fairly coordinated. And so there wasn't time to say from the north, for example, to the south, hey, we just had this happen because it was all happening simultaneously. That's pretty hard to pull off. But I I don't put it beyond a really good, professional, disciplined guerrilla force to do that. I mean, Massoud used to do that in Afghanistan regularly. The line of Panjshir, that's the reason he got the reputation he did. It's the reason bin Laden killed him, killed him right before the 9-11 events, because he knew Massoud would be unsupportive of what he was doing. So guerrillas can become really good. Che Guevara in Cuba is another example of guerrillas becoming really good. And I think Hamas had learned over the years, and they did this fairly well. Now, Bruce Fine and Ralph have a lot more to say about the many violations of international law that are occurring in Israel and Palestine. Plus, Bruce explains how Congress has become spineless. Well, the worst violation is genocide convention. You remember the genocide convention that finally took effect in 1951, but it was born of the Holocaust. And it specifically defines what is genocide. Like any other crime, it has various elements. And the gist of it is creating of life for a religious, ethnic, national, or other group calculated to destroy that group in whole or in part. Creating conditions of life calculated to destroy a group in whole or in part. You take that definition and you juxtapose it with collective statements of the energy and defense ministers of Israel, basically saying no water, no food, no power, no fuel, they're animals, and we'll treat them according. Now, it doesn't take scientists to know if you have no food and you no know water, you're going to die. So the reason why this is important is because it shows the intent. Genocide is an intent crime. What was the mens rea behind the killings, if you will? And what is happening in Gaza is clearly intended to create conditions of life that will destroy Palestinians and whole or in part. You don't have to kill every one of them. In Srebrenica, during the Serbian war, the killings of like six or 700 Muslims was held to be genocide. And genocide is what you call the crime of crimes. And it's truly ironic that the genocide convention born of the Holocaust now is being violated by Israel. Now, in times of stress and anger, people can see and say things that seem quite wild or hysterical, but the energy minister and the defense minister or Netanyahu haven't said, no, those words were spoken in anger, we retract them. They're still strong and affirmed today as they were a week ago after October 7th unfold. So, you know, once you're at the genocide level of criminality, most everything else seems kind of 
minor in comparison. But the second war crime clearly is the violation of the standard of proportionality. That is, it's clearly illegal under the laws of war to resort to weapons that are known or reasonably likely to kill civilians in numbers vastly disproportionate uh, to the importance of the military objective at stake. And we had asked at one point when we had an initial program with Gideon Levy, what's the military objective here? And he said he didn't know that there was one other than killing Palestinians. Obviously, they have an objective of destroying Hamas. But is that really different than just killing Palestinians? Not all Palestinians are Hamas. They don't wear signs. They don't have membership cards saying, I'm Hamas. How, if you're taking a risk-free approach to warfare and trying to destroy, you consider the threat created by Hamas, and they have certainly a threat. They did kill people and they committed war crimes too. You just kill anyone who's always a potential Hamas member, even if they're small, who they could grow into Hamas some future time. So the result is that there isn't any scalpel-like approach to the killing that's ongoing. And that explains the very, very alarming, obscene numbers of civilians who are dying, even though probably what's reported is a vast undercount, just like the undercount of the civilian casualties in Vietnam, just like the vast undercount of all the civilians killed by predator drones in the United States. You know, we count a handful. The people who are on the ground count tens of thousands. But it doesn't really matter the total number. There's no threshold that it has to soar past X number before it becomes genocide. If it's intended and calculated to destroy a group in whole or in part, it becomes genocide. And here we have the genocide compounded and aggravated by the law of proportionality. Then we have another rule of warfare is that you cannot have forcible removal, transfer of populations. Well, I mean, Israel told over a million Gazans, you know, get out of North Gaza, go to the South. But they weren't actually making the South a safe haven. They're bombing the South and destroying the South, maybe not quite as much as the North, but the forcible removal of civilian populations is another war crime. And then we have the fact that Israel now has basically gone well, well beyond the law of self-defense, if you will. There really is a little bit like, in my judgment, 9-11. Really, although we belated it, called it warfare, the initial charges against Zachariah Massawi, he was one of the so-called 20 hijackers, was for murder. We didn't charge him with war or war crime. And then we escalated it because the fact is, as horrendous and evil as al-Qaeda was, they're not a threat to our existence. Now, the idea they didn't have another attack for 20 years. Hamas is never an existential threat to Israel. And to suddenly escalate you know, that attack to the level of war, which is by definition legalizing first degree murder, is also a war crime. You're going well beyond, you're committing the crime of aggressive war. You're going well, well beyond self-defense to destroy another people. So that's what you have. And you mentioned, Ralph, the words of President Biden, you must operate uh, according or encouraging Israel to operate according to the rules of law and warfare. But at the same time, he, his defense secretary, the secretary of state said unconditionally, we have your back. Now is no time for calling for ceasefires or truces or anything. 
It'll just be utilized by Hamas to strengthen themselves and therefore be silent. Well, the message to Israel, in fact, was the words about operating according to the law of war were just words. They were just euphemisms to cover the horrors that are ongoing. And I want to mention this as well, Ralph, because the United States is supplying systematically Israel with the weapons used to conduct their warfare, we become equally criminally culpable with Israel for its war crimes, including genocide. And under the Genocide Convention, Article 9, any nation in the world could take Israel or the United States to court before the International Court of Justice in Hague, arguing that both countries are now complicit in genocide of Palestinians. Hasn't been done. It's largely because of fear. We have military and financial strength that dwarfs these other countries. So they feel there'd be retaliation. But that's always a possibility. Maybe one country at some time or afterwards will bring a, a suit like that. There's not a statute of limitations on genocide, so you can bring it any time. Tell us about the legal concept of co-belligerency, which you say the U.S. is now yeah. reflecting in its yes. Co-belligerency co co has a long history in international law. Co-belligerency means systematically providing weapons or other military support to a belligerent. It's, it can't be isolated, but got to be systematic. And we are supplying Israel systematically with billions of dollars of weapons. Not only that, we're sharing intelligence. We're giving them financial aid as well. And it's all for the purpose of aiding the belligerency of Israel against Hamas or the Palestinians. So by any standard of international law, we become co-belligerents. Now, what does that mean as a matter of law? It means that the belligerent on the other side can attack us as though we were the initial belligerent. So it invites blowback. So it is very, very concerning when we become a co-belligerent and Congress has done nothing. They haven't said anything like that whatsoever. Uh, president decides all the cases, you know, whenever we risk ourselves by going to warfare, because Congress now has taken it as the norm that they abdicate all of their duties because they don't want to for of horror confront a primary opponent. Imagine that, running against another opposition candidate in an election. That's un-American to many Republicans these days. <laughs> we don't have to want elections. We like the way they do them in Russia and China. Anyway, that's how derelict our democratic system has become. Well, what should Congress be doing about it under the Constitution? One thing that could be clearly done, Ralph, is to condition the aid on certification and strict compliance with the laws of war, including avoiding any genocide. I wouldn't trust the executive branch to be the body to certify it. It could even identify the group. It could identify the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross, to certify that the laws of war are being complied with so that we have some conditions placed upon the use of our weapons. Congress isn't even introducing bills, not even one. 55 members did write to the president, Mr. Biden, voicing concern over violating the laws of warfare. And the gist of the letter ended, please make it better. Didn't even refer to the power of the purse, which has been in the hands of Congress for 234 years. Didn't even mention that. Now, remember, Ralph, we can go back to Vietnam. And this is when one of our favorite members, Elizabeth Holtzman, introduced a bill, and it was supported by then Robert Byrd in the Senate. Cut off all funds. No more funds after August 15, 1973 for any combat in Indochina. That ended the war. 
It meant when Ford wanted to go back in when North Vietnam was conquering and occupying then South Vietnam, you know, we finally, we stayed out. We didn't go back in and create another mess. But Congress passed that. At least Congress had the, the strength and the audacity even in 1970 to repeal the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. This Congress doesn't even repeal the 2001 AUMF, you know, which is obsolete, the 2002 AUMF. So it's not like there aren't historical precedents to show that Congress does have the authority to do these things without risking ridicule or a national security state. It's simply, it is a completely spineless institution. And I say that with great reluctance because this Congress is intended by the Constitution to be the first among equals, and it's totally permitted separation of powers to be burned to the ground, and we're all suffering as a result. Finally, Bruce encourages us to listen to some lessons from James Madison's political strategies. I would wager that if someone walked down Jerusalem and read the Ben-Gurion quote, they'd be attacked by Netanyahu and his thugs. They brook no dissent, no challenge, nothing, period. Shut up. That's what it's all about. Yep. Yeah. That's the yeah. history of the world, unfortunately. A lot of the history of the world is that way. Yeah. It is. I mean, and that's, that's, that's it goes by we, and, and I, I, that's why I keep emphasizing, right? The separation of powers, the only way you can make the world better is to get institutions to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Try to get them to do the right reason, never works. <laughs> if you give them the wrong reason, they'll do the right thing, right? And it's a hard job, you know? And that's why I thought, that's why I spend so much time on Madison, because Madison starts sitting, Ralph and Steve, in, in these legislatures mm-hmm. and in the executive councils at age 25. And still he's reading all these books at Princeton. So he sees all the politicians up front and he says, there's no way I'm ever get them to read the Sermon on the Mountain, according to the Sermon on the Mount. And that was his idea of ambition against ambition. Men aren't made of angels because he was seeing it every single day. And here's a guy, he's spending his time reading, you know, not wasting his time and like uh, Aaron Burr or other stuff, you know, having his escapades and misadventures. And that what gave him insight into the political mind that was unique because he combined the academic and intellectual sphere with day-to-day politicians who don't think hard and are always preoccupied with just power and how can I get an advantage over an opponent. Very, very few people ever combine that. And he's doing this at age 25. Which is why later he said that the, the greatest feature of the Constitution is putting the declare war power in Congress, not in the presidency. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And that's when he was responding to Alexander Hamilton, who wanted, you know, he, he wanted a lifetime presence, Alexander Hamilton. That's, that's why it's really a tragedy that they make Hamilton into this great figure on Broadway. James Madison gets nothing. I said, really, you want to celebrate something? James Madison. Alexander Hamilton would have us royalty, you know, back like the British, if it weren't for Madison and Jefferson. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. High-ranking State Department official Josh Paul has resigned from the agency, citing the Biden administration's hard line on support for Israel's attacks on Gaza, per the Huffington Post. Paul, who oversaw top-level arms sales at the State Department, said, quote, When I came to this bureau, I knew it was not without its moral complexity and moral compromises, and I made myself a promise that I would stay for as long as I felt the harm I might do could be outweighed by the good I could do. 
I am leaving today because I believed that in our current course with regards to the continued, indeed expanded and expedited provision of lethal arms to Israel, I have reached the end of that bargain. End quote. In a later interview with PBS NewsHour, Paul stated that human rights abuses by the IDF are tracked but routinely ignored by the State Department's senior leadership. The Intercept reports 16 former campaign staffers for Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania sent a letter calling on the senator to back a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, writing, quote, It is not too late to change your stance and stand on the righteous side of history, end quote. Fetterman has thus far been a hawkish supporter of Israel in this war. This letter follows a similar letter to Senator Elizabeth Warren, wherein 260 of her former presidential campaign staff urged her to call for a ceasefire as well, per Politico. The Messenger also reports Representative Ro Khanna's political director has resigned in protest of Khanna's opposition to a ceasefire resolution. The United Nations reports that on October 18th, the United States vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution, authored by Brazil's UN delegation, won the support of 12 of the Council's 15 members, but the sole veto of the United States was enough to kill the measure. The American UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, justified the veto by saying, quote, this resolution did not mention Israel's right of self-defense, end quote. No other delegation voted against the resolution, though the United Kingdom and Russia abstained from voting. USA Today reports that Starbucks and the Starbucks Workers Union have filed, quote, dueling lawsuits over a pro-Palestine social media post, end quote. Starbucks claims the post, which read simply, quote, solidarity with Palestine, quote, damaged the company's reputation, end quote, with Executive Vice President Sarah Kelly claiming this implies the union's, quote, support for violence perpetrated by Hamas, end quote. On the other hand, the union alleges this is nothing more than another tactic in Starbucks' quote, illegal anti-union campaign, end quote, with the company, quote, falsely attacking the union's reputation with workers and the public, end quote. Since 2021, over 330 unfair labor practice charges have been filed against Starbucks with the National Labor Relations Board. As the United Auto Workers strike continues, the union has already achieved major concessions from the auto companies. These include General Motors, Ford, Stellantis, offering a 23% wage increase, Ford agreeing to reduce the progression period to reach peak wages from eight years to three, with Stellantis agreeing to four years, and Ford agreeing to reinstate cost of living adjustments, per the Detroit Free Press. Union President Sean Fain continues to press the companies, however, noting forcefully that even as Ford claims to be financially strained, they announced a $600 million dividend to shareholders just this week. The Hill reports that senators are, quote, zeroing in, end quote, on national standards for name, image, and likeness rights for college athletes. Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut said in a recent hearing on the issue, quote, the system of college athletics is in need of reform. The system all too long has been exploitative and abusive emotionally and physically, end quote. Witnesses at the hearing testified that national standards would help avoid major disparities in compensation across state lines and would ensure protections for student-athletes in sports besides football and basketball. The senators assembled largely agreed that the national standards are necessary, though some, like Senator Hawley of Missouri, fretted about the possibility of student-athletes unionizing. Axios reports that D.C. lawmakers have proposed an innovative bill that would, quote, allocate $11 million annually to residents who could use these vouchers to support any local news outlet of their choice, end quote. This proposal was pioneered by the Democracy Policy Network, or DPN, co-founded by Pete Davis. 
DPN volunteer Mark Histed said of the bill, quote, we believe that markets are not sufficient to provide the level of journalism that we need in a democracy, end quote. If the D.C. Council passes the bill, the district would join New Mexico, California, and New Jersey in providing state funds for local journalism. 33 states have filed a lawsuit against Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta, alleging that the tech titan, quote, routinely collects data on children under 13 without their parents' consent in violation of federal law, end quote, per AP. In addition, nine state attorneys general are filing lawsuits in their states, meaning nearly every single state in the nation and Washington, D.C., are taking action. New York Attorney General Letitia James said in a statement, quote, Meta has profited from children's pain by intentionally designing its platform with manipulative features that make children addicted while lowering their self-esteem. On October 24th, the California Department of Motor Vehicles issued a statement declaring the immediate suspension of permits issued to the company Cruise, which had allowed them to test and deploy driverless taxicabs in the state. The California DMV wrote, quote, When there is an unreasonable risk to public safety, the DMV can immediately suspend or revoke permits, end quote, further noting that there is no set time limit for a suspension and that the suspension is effective immediately. Finally, the Minnesota reformer is out with a story on how the Minneapolis Police Department and local government conspired to run a protection racket targeting small, minority-owned businesses in the city. Put simply, quote, Some businesses are required by the city to have security, which until 2020 sometimes had to be off-duty Minneapolis police officers. The city doesn't keep track of how much officers are working, or how much they're paid, or even have access to the contracts. Some officers are still paid in cash, increasing the risk of tax evasion. And several business owners and Minneapolis officials said some small business owners, particularly those owned by immigrants, have been led to believe they must hire MPD officers or risk getting ghosted by police, end quote. One of the officers involved in this racket was none other than Derek Chauvin, later convicted of murdering George Floyd and setting off riots in the city that, in an ironic twist, led to the destruction of one of the businesses he had been involved in, quote-unquote, protecting. This has been Francesco DeSantis, with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long.